Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Mark Hello. Today we are talking about shows that talk about songs because we are keeping it interesting and wild here on Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. Mm-hmm. I am your co-host, Mark Blankenship, and with me today and forever is my co-host, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello, Sarah. Hello. So why don't you give us a bit of an overview of what we're experimenting with on the old podcast today? Um, well, in order to honor um, this television program from Netflix called This Is Pop, which has a very similar title to ours in that it just is like, it's pretty simple. This is pop. Right. Um, Mark and Sarah talk about songs, pretty much. Uh, this show dropped recently, and we were thinking about talking about it for a Patreon supporter-only single, which uh, we're still doing a single, but on something else. And we have a lot of fun on our Patreon. You should join us, patreon.com slash mastass. We would love to have you. But we thought, like, if we were given a show like a, you know, TV show that is Mark and Sarah talk about songs. This is pretty close to probably what we would do, particularly in some (laughs) of the topics, because it returns in its topics in the episodes to many of the things that we talk about. Um, And so we're just talking about the show and certain episodes. I have a clip from one of the episodes. Um, Overall, I, th- I think it's a great show and I think it's a smart way to approach this topic because they slice off pretty thin um, subjects. Like the first one I watched was When Country Goes Pop and they fit in really a lot of like a lot of different artists, um, a lot of different debates, a lot of commentary from just like Brandy Carlisle's commentary on this is gold. I could have clipped every single thing she said. She is mad enough at Porter Wagoner still to kick his ass like today on behalf of Dolly Parton, <laughs> who even Dolly's like, it's fine. It all worked out. <laughs> and Brandy's like, fuck that guy. Um, She would also fight people on behalf of Tanya Tucker, which word. That, that also worked out pretty well for Tanya last year at the Grammys. But the, the way that they slice off these topics and then really dig deeply into them, but also leave the show room to like come back for a second or third season and do similar slices. Like there's a Brit pop episode that really is about the battle between Blur and Oasis and what that said about class divisions in England 25 years ago. Uh, There's an episode called The Brill Building in Four Songs, which was fascinating. That's like the season finale. Uh, I just think the setup is really intelligent. They get excellent commentators. Um, Usually there are a couple episodes where I'm like, why isn't why aren't the Gallagher's here? Like Liam Gallagher has done a ton of music documentaries that are not about him. What, where is he (laughs) now? But I just find the show really enjoyable and I recommend it highly. I learned a lot, but 
Mark, I'm wondering what you thought in particular of the When Country Goes Pop episode, because I feel like that is much closer to your lived experience than mine. Oh, it's so interesting that you would bring that one up because I like that one, but it wasn't one of the ones that I was the most excited by. Really? And I think it might have something to do with the fact that I've thought about the things in that episode so much that I was like, yes, I concur with these things that I have thought about before. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it was very well done. And I would say that, in fact, of the eight episodes of this series, six of them are quite successful. And the two that I feel fail are interesting in the ways that they fail. Right. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Which ones Um, did you feel were which ones underwhelmed you? The one about music festivals Mm -hmm. and the one about protest music. Yeah. Yep. Same. Because I think that what happens in those two episodes is they start to get away from the thing you correctly identified, I feel, as one of the strengths of the series. In the festivals episode and the protest songs episode, they don't thinly slice it. They don't slice it thinly enough. Yes, I agree. It starts to feel like a glancing blow that doesn't really say much of anything except music festivals happen and sometimes songs are political and there's nothing to be said there. But country pop. okay. so but to go back to the country pop episode, the way that they talk about the career of Tanya Tucker, that was very interesting to me because I haven't actually heard her discussed in that way. Like even in the 9,000 hour oft mentioned on this program, country music documentary by Ken Burns, <laughs> mm-hmm. they didn't quite make this, the arguments that they made here about Tanya Tucker as someone who resisted the box that she had been put in and was very forward with her sexuality and was punished for it essentially, but then cleared the way for all of these future artists like Brandy Carlisle, like Nico Case to make themselves known. And that shit was really interesting to me. So even the country goes pop episode, which is a very broad topic, right? The pop influence on country music and mm-hmm. vice versa. You could write 15 books on that, but that the, the, the ability to zero in on her in those moments was really great. And, uh, That's just one example of some of the stuff I loved in the series. I liked how the focus wound up being like it was pretty broad. But then as the episode goes along, you realize that it's a very sort of like um, feminist focused angle that they're coming at it from and particularly talking about the ways that women artists would be punished for Mm -hmm trying to cross over and the ways that country music sort of gatekeeping um, was like, it was fine for Johnny Cash to be doing nine inch nails covers. But if anyone like if any, you know, ovarian Americans try it, then, then it's a like big scandal and it's the end of country and da da da. And, you know, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. So I actually think that also speaks to one of the sly choices that they made to have this country singer named Orville Peck be the narrator of this episode. Mm -hmm. And there's some like very showy, weird shit that happens with the narration in some of these episodes where they create. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and then Tanya Tucker's bulldog gets a Chiron and then the director of the episode has to ask her to wake the dog up because it's snoring. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's. Yeah, that was good. Not mad about that. No, but like, me neither. In some of the episodes, they create these frame stories where these really heightened narrators talk to you about what they're doing. And the heightened narrators are in these heightened environments. Like the Stockholm 
the Swedish pop episode takes place in a fictional teenager's bedroom. And Mm -hmm. there's this woman talking anyway. But Orville Peck is a gay country musician who has never shown his face in public. And still does not. And still has not. And has this like masky thing in front of his face during this whole episode. And having a gay, a non intentionally anonymous country singer host this episode actually, I think underscores the point that you were just making about where the feminine lives too mm-hmm. often in the country music industry. Yeah. Because they lead off with Lil Nas X and, um, this, also gay. Yeah. This conversation about like what is country and what is not country and the uh, sort of the decision to foreground, um, queer artists as um, narrators and interviewees and like those guiding the story, not just from a subject standpoint, but from a narration standpoint is a choice that I think we're mm-hmm. supposed to clock. Um, and I, it worked for me. Like it, it was too, it bit off maybe too many things. And but like these episodes also up. are 45 minutes long. They fly by like, and there's certainly yeah. enough there that I was like, I'm not mad. Even the two episodes I didn't like, I was like, uh, oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Enough. And it's like, they don't, I mean, yes, some of the episodes individually try to do too much, but that's just because like the episode is 44 minutes long. Um, before we leave the country goes pop, uh, portion of our program, a couple of notes. First of all, Winona's husband is named Cactus. Cactus. <laughs> he and he looks like he would be named Cactus. What Cactus Moser, which is like yes. just the countryest name that ever country. There's like 88 Ks in that country. Love it. No, I you, I actually was giving this episode short shrift because I remember now thinking, God, it's so nice that Winona gets to talk. You're yeah. right. Like nobody ever asks her, and she was one of the biggest stars in country music for like 15 years. And I also enjoyed that she was like just talking about like the marketing of Shania and then there's like a music journalist comparing Shania Twain to Bob Wills, which I was like, oh, like I just had to pause it and be like, are you are you fucking kidding me, son? And then I was like, no, like based on what he's saying, yes, that works, but it's absolutely not a comparison you think you're just going to hear like in the world of right. your life, like Shania Twain and Bob Wills in the same sentence. Sure. And I also enjoyed that they, um, I I don't know if they encouraged people to talk shit, but certainly people were not shy in this section. Here is a uh, Nico case, um, just verbally eye rolling a question from the director. There's a perception that country is all about honesty and integrity. (laughs) That's a total... I don't even know how somebody could say that with a straight face. (laughs) The idea that country music is the music of honesty and integrity versus pop music, that's something else. Like, that's what large entities say when they want poor people to think that they notice them. <laughs> a fucking man. Yeah. Nico case. Yeah. Like there is 
there is a lot of attention paid throughout the series to the difference between what is actually happening in pop from a composition standpoint and what you're being told is happening in a pop moment from a marketing standpoint that I I think the series is generally really smart about that, even when it lets its topics get away from it a little bit sometimes. I feel like one of the subtitles of this entire series could in fact be don't be suckered when pop says it's real. Mm hmm. And like, and that's actually fine because as we have been spending years discussing at this point, acknowledging the artifice is not the same as denying the possibility of authentic emotion. Right. Also, artifice can be and usually is craftsmanship. And you have to look at why the artifice is being employed. Like we just talked about this in the last episode, like Disco is extremely built and artificial, and in my view, three quarters of the time, like one quarter of the time, it's just like poppers and bugging out, and then you're going to fuck in the bathroom, and the other three quarters of the time, it's like, let us hide from utter despair. Yes. Well, and it's one of the things that's so nice, too, is that the country episode, and then I will use that to segue into my personal favorite episode of the series— The country episode doesn't feature anyone who comes on and spreads the traditional party line about how Dolly Parton doing a dance song is the disaster that was waiting to kill country music forever. Yeah. And it's skeptical about anyone who would suggest that. As though these songs that are about the authenticity of country music aren't just as artificial as Nico K said, it's it's trying to convince poor people that corporations care about them. It's the same fucking thing when Budweiser slaps a rainbow flag on a bottle and then wants us, wants gay people to think, Oh, Budweiser cares about me when no, they don't fucking care about you. They just want their, your money. Yeah. And like, uh, if they cared about you, they'd make the beer list shitty. One of my deepest feelings of rage in my life always emerges when anyone seems to believe that corporations care about them. Well, they especially don't. especially in the last year and like, you know, as we record this um, Pride Month ended like a week and a half ago and the number of corporate social media accounts that just put a rainbow skin on their logo. Yeah, it's like this is like by doing the literal least that you can do. It's almost worse. It's like when I. um it's like when I delivered pizzas and people would round up to the nearest dollar on like eight pies and three two liter bottles of Pepsi. Like, fuck you. Just ask for change. Don't insult me. Yeah. You have stairs, you skin flinty motherfucker. Well, it's like or it's like when fast food chains were. I remember last <sighs> summer um, there was a McDonald's social media campaign in support of Black Lives Matter that oh. on on McDonald's colors, they put the names of people who had been murdered by the oh. of black people who had been murdered by the police. And it's like, God. you know, I don't think that these people died so that they could become part of a McDonald's colorscape. Like, fuck yeah. off. I I mean, for for much more on McDonald's relationship to uh communities of color and the co-opting of Martin Luther King Jr. in particular, I highly recommend that everybody read Franchise by Marsha Chatlin. She was a guest on one of my other podcasts a couple of times. Uh, That book just won the Pulitzer a 
couple weeks ago. Um, so, Sarah, it's funny you should mention that because the reason I was even thinking about that McDonald's campaign is because I started reading Franchise this morning. Oh. And she mentions the campaign in the special paperback preface. I so, am. Amazing. That is awesome. I actually haven't. I read it in um, hardcover. And uh, man, like I, I sort of envy you like having the book ahead of you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It's like gosh. when well, people are like, I'm gonna in. start last call. And I'm like, oh, I remember I... starting last call. <laughs> oh God. Last call I read in a literal day. Yeah, yes. same. same. Okay, so that actually is also a pretty good segue into the episode that I love the most, which is the auto-tune episode. Uh-huh. Okay. This this episode of This Is Pop is also very invested in dismantling specious claims of authenticity in mm -hmm. pop music. Yep. And it does so in, I think, a brilliant manner by simultaneously introducing us to the person who created the auto-tune technology mm -hmm. and then allowing T-Pain, one of the artists who used uh, auto-tune to the greatest commercial effect, to tell his story and talk about his artistry. And it is so brilliantly structured that you see how auto-tune becomes this secret tool in the music business, how T-Pain goes through hell and high water to learn what auto-tune is. There's this fascinating story about how he takes basically two years of his life <laughs> before the before Google was really there to like figure out what auto-tune auto is, then shows him using the product, being punished for its use by mm -hmm. a community, including people in the R&B and hip hop community who said that he didn't have any real talent. Right. Then he demonstrates that he was always able to sing. And then in doing that, he is forces us all to reckon with our notions of authenticity and what they mean. And then all of that is underscored by the presence of this woman who in the early 80s was making all kinds of experimental auto-tune style music on places like David Letterman. And you see how people didn't get it. And it's so fucking brilliant, Sarah. And I felt like my mind was blown by watching this brilliant analysis of how we both crave and villainize technology in pop music. Uh, yeah. And how, how, um, here again, as is so often true with various, um, evolutions or, um, innovations in, or ch just change in pop music, no matter what subgenre that, um, authenticity, like to, to use technology, um, is for white guys for right. bright rock guys to be admired for innovating. But right, then, like the wah-wah pedal or whatever. Right. But if it's an artist of color or a woman, we're taking shortcuts um, or we don't have any, quote, real talent. I mean, I just feel like Cher got, has gotten hammered so hard for using using sweeteners and I feel like Britney and Madonna have gotten hammered for like, well, you know, they're not singing while they're dancing. Like you fucking try it then Topher. Yeah. And also guess what? Literally everyone you've ever seen is now using pitch correction. It's yeah. just what happens now. It, yeah. all, it happens on Broadway. God, but like the, um, if you listen to a Stone Roses album and like, look, I love the Stone Roses, but 
Ian can't carry a tune if he hadn't fucking one of those big blue Ikea bags, all right? But that's just like this eccentricity of the band. But if, I don't know, Echo Belly did it, or Letters to Cleo, or like any other like Brit or, pop or, band. Or Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. or Madonna. Like, God forbid a woman become popular who isn't able to sound the way that we think that singers are supposed to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that it's like, what, let, let's let examine what it is that you're really saying, which is that I want like John Cougar Mellencamp levels of, frankly, performative authenticity, like nothing against John Cougar Mellencamp, but I just feel like he is this like, uh, you know, Hoosier trademark symbol of like authenticity. And then you compare that to like Bruce Springsteen, who has a whole album about like, basically, you know, he's singing about Tom Joad, like, sir, you own an entire town. I mean, right. Again, nothing against Bruce Springsteen, but nobody ever comes for either of those dudes for this stuff. Right. They all know because they are unimpeachably authentic. Yeah. Johnny Cash is, you're exactly right. Johnny Cash is the same fucking way. Mm hmm. But I mean, if yeah. like if Roseanne Cash tried that shit, they'd be like, nah, you're just drafting off. You're just dra- like you're a copycat. You're a legacy. What it like? Yeah. Is it really about that or is it about the boobs? Pretty sure it's about the boobs. And- I also think this is a, you, you touched on Echo Belly, which takes us back to the Britpop episode, which I really also think is very good at slyly dismantling the class war that was stoked by the media in the Oasis versus blur battle of the mid nineties. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I actually wish they had gone into a little bit more is that for all of the press that this got, neither band was really that successful in America. (laughs) Like, I mean, I feel like I was in a cohort where like I, you know, was friends with a music writer um, I like hung out with corner shop a few times. I was friends with people who would like go to England to go to Oasis shows. So uh-huh. my sense of like how many other people were listening to the train spotting album over and over again all day was like, it, I was in a weird slice where like this kind of thing was huge. Like I mm. had access to copies of enemy and I read it like, Okay. But I I had forgotten, and I had also forgotten, like, what a sort of compressed time period that was. Yes, very brief. And then the part at the end, like, that's where, that's where I really wanted it to, like, go into, like, in the second season, like, get more into that. Like, Wonderwall comes out, everybody plays Nebworth, Tony Blair runs on basically a Britpop conversant platform, the the follow-up albums come out in 97 and are kind of not as good. And then, like, music sharing takes over. Nobody's buying entire albums anymore except basically us. Um, right. no, like, nobody watches, uh, nobody watches the telly anymore to know what they're supposed to like. So, like, being on top of the pops is like, whatever. Um, and the one guy from Blur is like, so what do you do if you want to be a drunk bass player? Like, what do, what do people do now? 
he's like, I, I couldn't even do it anymore. So I became a cheese farmer, which is hilarious to me. Right. But it's like that, that shift in pop music. Like, I feel like you could get a whole season out of the dismantled norms that yeah. we used not only to understand, not only to consume music, but to understand what music meant. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And they, they sort of try to come at that with the, in the festival episode a little bit, but ugh, the festival episode was very frustrating. That to me is the only F on the docket, but we'll get to that in one second. I do want to just say, lest anyone tweet me, I know that Oasis actually was pretty popular here, but they only had one top 10 song and one hit album. So compared to what they were like in England, just not as big. It's all, it's yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah. And I know also if you go back in our archives to our Brit pop episode, we will also get on the fact that Damon Alburn ironically had his biggest hit in America with Gorillaz, his mm-hmm. cartoon rock band from a few years later. So whatever. Uh, that was episode 24. Oh, shit. So yeah. when we were like 15? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was 15. You were a you were a mere child. I was 11. I yeah. was still I I was still reading where the red fern grows. <laughs> it grows on the Billboard charts is where. Uh so yes, hmm. Okay. I want to talk about the Boys to Men episode, but I also want to talk about the festival episode. Let's talk about the festival episode next, I think. I don't have as much to say other than to say that if you are a patron, we will be discussing in this month's single the upcoming HBO documentary on Woodstock 99. Mm-hmm. And spoiler, I think that that documentary probably has more success because it is so narrow focused. Yeah. But uh, I felt that the festival episode of this series didn't seem to have a clear sense of what it was trying to say in yeah. the way that the best episodes did. And I, I think it it figured it out, but then it was really trying to jam um, all the sort of footage it had access to into this not entirely successful like mission statement of the episode. And the most interesting parts, um, like there were sections of it that I was like, why wasn't this the whole episode? Like, why wasn't the fact that Michelle Phillips basically had to create, help create the human being while getting no credit? P.S. Right, of course. Um, off an idea that John Phillips got from their pot dealer. And, you know, she's just like, she doesn't care. Her hair is like this. <laughs> Winchester house construction. She's wearing like a T-shirt from Kohl's. She's Michelle Phillips and she doesn't have to give a shit anymore. So she doesn't, which <laughs> right. I enjoy. Um, but why wasn't it all about that? Or the Us Festival, which like the I was alive during that time. I was watching MTV. Like I had no idea that Steve Wozniak put together this whole thing that was like the marriage of music and technology. And we'll like have a we'll have a satellite link up with these Russian kids who haven't even seen a piece of bread in five years. Never mind MTV. Right. Like that was cool and that someone would have that naively hands across the Bering Strait festival idea in Reagan's first term is like, I mean, of course it was Wozniak, but like that, I mean, that's kind of rad and the technology was completely different and shittier back then. Like that's, that's 42 minutes. Just talk about that. Yeah, honestly, I, I agree with you because I didn't know that at all. Like watching those astronaut 
It was yeah. it was crazy and good. Oh. And right, like that actual attempt to make good on the idealism of so many festivals where you're like, we're going into Russia. Russian kids like jeans and rock music too. Yeah. That was fascinating. Yeah. Or to or come at it from the standpoint because this was something that the um, Woodstock 99 documentary that we'll be talking about in the single touches on also, but like they keep coming back to this idea that like the festivals are not financially sustainable and the tension between, uh, you know, the granddaddy of all of them, Woodstock coming out of this very sincere place that was not commercial necessarily initially anyway and festivals now, which like always lose money. So how how do you repackage that to like keep the feel of the fest, but not drive everyone into the poorhouse? And the answer is you put a bunch of acts on a docket and you put the docket on the bus and right. you take it around the, like you tour with it, which fine. That comes back to the fact that for working pop artists now, like if you don't tour, you don't eat. Right. Right. Um, And the disaster of 2020 for so many artists and musicians and all of the ancillary people in that industry that keep shows going who had no jobs. Like, right. I, I mean, here's season two. Hi, you're welcome. I'll wait for my check. Yeah, seriously. But even the. I'll say this about This Is Pop. Not every episode worked great, but it threw off a ton of thoughts about what else they can do going forward. That was, that is cool. So. And it also made it clear, even in this episode, like the whole series is clearly created by people who want to dig deeper than a VH1 I Love the 80s special. Yes, totally. Which it's is not like rewarding. Trivia. It's like, it's like the big, big thoughts. And. The other thing I will add about the festivals episode, I was really surprised, and this will come up in the Woodstock documentary too, there's this commitment to the narrative about white aggro boys kind of fucking everything up. Right. And neither neither this episode nor the Woodstock film ever mentions the Lilith Fair. Yeah, what the hell? Which was a highly successful alternative to that exact problem mm -hmm. that ran for years and was culturally definitive. Um, they also don't touch the fire festival, right? Which they I'm like, it, I mean, if you're going to be about festivals like this is the, this was a huge boondoggle. I guess they just figured like it. Well, again, I think done. it's because, and the fact is that with this episode, especially they don't really have a clear enough thesis. So we're, we can't, we as viewers can't understand why these things aren't there because we don't really know what they're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Now, another place where we do know exactly what they're trying to say in terms of hyper focus, there's the the first episode of the series is called the boys to men effect. Mm -hmm. And this is essentially a behind the music episode about boys to men. It's it's very different from all of the other episodes, which are thematic and not focused around a single artist in this way. But I don't right. know about you, Sarah, but I still thought this was a really interesting and successful look at boys to men and that brief moment when they were very, very popular. Yeah, I agree. And I, th I think that they did enough sort of like irising out, um, to like, just give us a sense of the industry at mm -hmm. the time, um, that it, I think it's a good sort of indicator of what the 
rest of the series will be like. And it's a good way to like pull people in and then they can do, they could be a little bit more sort of big picture in other episodes. But I was going to say, um, based off some of our recent comments, like I think the ordering of these is smart. Mm-hmm. Like not that it really makes a difference in the streaming era, but I'm like a, you know, I'm Gen X and I just watch things in the order that they're supposed to be. Watched. Oh, I did too. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So I thought this was a smart, like I'm always being like that you opened your album with this in ranking episodes, but like this was, this was well chosen as the, as the first track. And I will say that this is an episode where we see the arrival of a weird pattern throughout the series, which is where they make these realistic looking posters and news clippings, Mm -hmm. but they're really jokes where they're trying to underline the points of an episode. But Mm -hmm. if you're not careful, you might think that what you're looking at is a real document. And I actually saw on Twitter people thinking that a sign that was posted in this episode, that's a fake sign that says, wanted uh boys to men sound and sync looks people thought that was real right and i think that that is just uh it's your first season and you're still maybe learning how to put your visual stamp on things but i did think that was i just wanted to note that sometimes in the attempt to make jokes they also seem to be creating misleading historical documents that's neither here nor there right but and also but that could have been um that could have been by design to, right. Like not to mislead, but just that that is a completely believable thing that Lou Pearlman would have put in. Right. The Orlando And if you newspapers. don't look closely enough to see that the area code on the phone number is five, five, or the prefix on the phone number is five, 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 you might be like, well, right. sure. <laughs> yeah. KL, good old KL five. But, um, I, I really liked the way that this episode successfully discussed both the fact that boys to men's vocal stylings were absolutely copped by the white boy bands that came later. Mm -hmm. But then also the fact that boys to men were so trapped in their own retro sound and their ballad heavy sound that they didn't know how to move forward. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not like, it's not like boys to men kept making great music that was with the times and no one was listening. They didn't know how to take their thing, their, their vocal thing and then translated into a contemporary soundscape. And I did wish that a little bit more attention had been paid to the fact that it wasn't like excellent black male vocalists stopped being successful in the early two thousands because we had Usher, we had Andre 3000. Mm -hmm. They were just doing something else that boys to men weren't equipped to do, but they touched on it enough that I felt I got to that place because of the way that they set me up. And I feel like that's another sign of a good show that gives me the tools that I need to keep thinking on my own. Yeah. That's what I was just talking about that. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, do I, do I also want this other narrative that, um, was prompted in my mind by the narrative that's actually here? Mm -hmm. Yes. But that's not, that's a feature, not a bug. I agree. And so, yes, basically, I've just reiterated what you've said, and I do want to acknowledge that I did that. Oh, no, but, uh, I, I wasn't trying to clock you for that. I was just like, oh, yeah, S- same experience know, in multiple episodes, which is is good. I, I mean, in case it's not clear, we recommend this. Yes, do watch and take notes and let us know what you think. I mean, we've we haven't even really talked about the last two episodes at all. There's just so much to get into or the Swedish pop episode. But the point is, this series does have a lot to offer. Yeah. 
And I mean, I was never bored. Um, but the thing is like, you can like, it's on streaming, so you can just skip it. You can skip around. Like I did kind of watch out of order. Cause I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to have time to watch them all. So let me just watch the ones that I definitely like want to see what they say. But then I started with, um, I started with when country goes pop, but then having seen what they were doing with that, it was, it was really hard to narrow down to like, what are the three essential ones? Mm -hmm. So do you want to, do you want to talk about our top three each? Yes. You go first. Um, well, the country one, um, just because I thought that their approach to it was, um, it was like right on the line of whimsical, but it didn't, it didn't cross it. And it brought up a lot of things that we have talked about on the podcast, but also had some other things that it was trying to do that were more subtle, like the more woman and queer focused Mm -hmm. ideas about this tension between country and pop when it comes to authenticity. So I thought that one was fantastic. Um, I liked the Brit pop one. Okay. Um, but like objectively speaking, but it, I really liked it because it brought me back to a certain time mm. in my own life. Uh, and just like wondering how Noel Gallagher became world famous with those eyebrows. Like it's just, it's just <laughs> like terrifying looking sometimes. Um, and seems like an actually scary person. So I, I liked that one, although I don't think it's necessarily one of the three best. It was one of my, favorites and then the auto-tune one which i thought was like such a smart way into the subject and as this series often does it's like hmm let's like let's think about who suffered in this little phenomenon that we're talking about oh women oh black people huh go figure so anyway this shitty thing happened oh here's a great song you didn't think about for a while okay bye so I, I think the auto-tune one might actually be the the best one. Well, we are in exact agreement on all three. I think that the auto-tune one is the first one you should watch if you're mm -hmm. interested in the series. Agree. If you like it, which I, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in, you're still listening to this episode, I think you will. <laughs> uh, listen, watch the auto-tune one. Yeah, and I agree. Country and Britpop are the next two. And if you're into all three of them, then I think you should just plow through the rest of them because they're all, if, if you like those three, you're going to like something about all the rest of them. Yeah. I, I do think the Brill building one should have been maybe moved up in the, in the row a few episodes. Mm. I think that might be one that people will be like, Oh, that's old people. But I, I thought that it was really cool and had a lot of like cool visuals. There wasn't a ton there that I didn't know, but I thought they did a really great job of, again, noting how oh look the black women who were in the chiffons got fucked okay mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet interestingly it was at the hands of the only woman who was a powerful executive at the time yeah interesting mm -hmm. stuff and also really interesting to allow andy kim to be such a dominant narrative presence because you don't really hear about him very much but he really had a lot to do with what was happening and he is obviously a person of color in this field and it was fascinating to see his perspective so the the brit the brill building one i thought 
did well it, it did a good job at making me find new ways to be interested in the thing I've heard about a lot. And yes. I don't know if you had this experience, Sarah, but it also made me think I never, ever, ever again need to hear anything from Linda Perry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all set. Like, girl, she was so confident in her uh, assertion that the way it was then is better than the way it is now. And she was ascribing all of these motives to these songwriters she didn't know about what they were thinking when they were making their music. And I was just like, you were saying this from your multi-million dollar private studio that you share with your wife, Sarah Gilbert. So mm. don't come to me with this today, please. Like, you don't, I, I'm very suspicious of anyone who says it was only good then and it's terrible now. And she also clearly is someone who will unironically look you in the eye and say that you need to smell sage so that you can open up a chakra. <laughs> yeah. Um, narrator, you don't. <laughs> Anyway, I got distracted by some Linda Perry rage. That being said, obviously, where the part uh, get the party started by Pink is a great song that mm -hmm. she wrote. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> this is pop. This is good. This is Mark and Sarah talk about songs. Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by Mark Blankenship, that's me, and Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. I also edit the podcast, which is a proud member of the Believe Network. Learn more at BLEAV.com. To learn more about us, submit song requests, get a pop chart reading, or buy a Mastis book, visit our website at MarkandSarahTalkAboutSongs.com. You'll also find all of our social media links there, too. That's Mark and Sarah, with an H, TalkAboutSongs.com. And for even more content and access to the Mastas Happy Hour, become a Patreon supporter at Patreon.com slash Mastas. Thanks for listening. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel and I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.